Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 44. Goodbye Henry, goodbye Matilda and a can of worms. Last time, we left off in the year 1099, with the death of Pope Urban II. He had died just before getting the news of the fall of Jerusalem to the Crusaders whom he had unleashed in 1095. He could, however, consider himself quite satisfied. I mean, obviously he could consider himself satisfied before he died. After he died, he could just consider himself dead. He had managed with his policies to manoeuvre his way out of the trap that Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV had tried to put him in, along with his greatest ally and long-term supporter of the papacy, Matilda of Tuscany, Countess of Canossa. We mentioned in the last episode that the Pope had taken things to another level, granting papal dispensations to international leaders, such as the Norman King Roger Hauteville of Sicily, and even to the English King William Rufus. Urban's more diplomatic approach had won many bishops in Italy and the rest of Europe back to the papal camp. Now it was the Emperor's turn to once again feel isolated. In 1097, he had given up his fight against Matilda after seven years. Matilda had won. Now she was free to take back her considerable lands and consolidate them. It wasn't all easy. In Parma, for example, the citizens rebelled against the new bishop that had been placed there, Bernardo. During the celebration of the Immaculate Conception, the citizens rebelled and took the bishop captive. It took a military intervention by Matilda to free him. She did not seek revenge on the city. After all, she wanted it back for keeps. She also made a series of concessions to other cities and she received calls for assistance from cities that had not been under her influence, such as the League formed by Milan, Lodi and Cremona. It was getting harder and harder for the ageing countess to continue. As time passed, she made more and more donations to the churches and monasteries. In the meantime, we have yet another Pope change to deal with. If you remember, Urban II had died in 1099. He was substituted by a Tuscan by the name of Raniero Ranieri. It's a bit like John Johnson again who took the name of Pascal II. Now the new guy on the papal throne seemed like he didn't want to make too much of a fuss and perhaps even a new agreement between the Pope and the Emperor could have come out of it. The situation was further simplified when anti-Pope Clement III, put in his place by Henry IV, died in the year 1100. However, trouble was coming for Henry IV from a completely different direction, his family. 
You will remember that Pope Urban and Matilda had lured the emperor's first son Conrad into betraying his father with promises of the crown of the Kingdom of Italy, the imperial crown, and a rich wife. None of these had turned out to have any real power or wealth behind them. He died in 1101. Henry the Fourth had another son. His name, would you believe it, was Henry. This Henry also rebelled against his father, but was a bit more successful. He was able to win the support of many German nobles, and struck at the right moment when Henry Senior was once again putting down a rebellion in Saxony. The father pleaded with the son to come back to him and not cause him any more pain, but the son, according to the Vita Henrici Quarti Imperatoris, the life of Henry the Fourth, the Emperor, did not agree. On the contrary, he told him that he no longer considered him a father, because he had been excommunicated, and so, pretending to work for the good of God, he really worked for the good of himself. Henry the Fourth was imprisoned by Henry, who became Henry the Fifth, and stripped his father of his imperial regalia. The father managed to escape with help of the nobles who were still loyal to him, and could perhaps have raised an army, but there was no fight left in him. After battling for decades with two strong popes and the Iron Countess Matilda, the heartbreak of yet another betrayal by another son. Was too much for him, and Henry the Fourth died on the seventh of August, eleven o six, at the age of fifty six, in exile, alone, just as his old adversary Gregory the Seventh had done. Depending on which chronicle you read, there was either great sadness or great rejoicing, and it's quite probable that both were true, depending on where you were. The fact of the matter was that there was a new emperor around, another Henry. His first order of business was, as was often the case, to consolidate his reign in Germany. While doing this, do we expect him to prove his loyalty to the Church by laying off investing bishops in his lands, as requested by the Pope? Not at all. He went straight away to prove that his support for the papacy had been a convenient position to oppose his father. Now he had what he wanted; he didn't need to keep up the ruse. Things came to a head once again in the year 1110. Pope Paschal II had been on a propaganda offensive to make sure he had the support of the nobility in the north of Italy in case he needed it, and. Was now extending the offensive to France. It was from there that he reiterated the claim that only the Pope could invest bishops. Not all chroniclers and historians connect the two things, but later that same year, King Henry V made his way down over the Alps. Is anyone getting a slight feeling of déjà vu? Or better, déjà heard in the case of a podcast, King Henry of Germany crossing the Alps to sort out rebellious vassals or sort things out with the Pope.
perhaps a Henry II or a Henry III and a Henry IV and some other kings and emperors in between? Well, here we go again. King Henry V of Germany made his way over the Alps with a considerable army and this time a whole gang of administrators who, in his intentions, would run the Italian cities for him. The reception he received was also nothing really new, although the names of the cities which welcomed or opposed him may have changed compared to his predecessors. The city of Vercelli in Piedmont welcomed him with open arms, while Novara, also in Piedmont, tried to resist and for its trouble had its walls demolished. I'm not even 100% sure what Milan did, with one chronicler and historian saying that it resisted him and another saying that the city not only welcomed him, but it was in Milan that he was crowned with the iron crown of the Lombards, making him king of Italy. Point two in the Become a Holy Roman Emperor checklist. The great Countess Matilda once again took to her hilltop fortifications and prepared yet again for the worst. However, this time round, Henry sent a delegation to her and they were able to smooth things out. Let bygones be bygones and so on. Matilda was once again reintegrated into her holdings and considered a loyal vassal of the empire. She had had enough of fighting against huge odds, and she really saw, in the peace between the empire and the papacy, the way forward in Europe. Henry V's visit to the area to this day is commemorated in the modern-day Council of Quattro Castella, very originally meaning four castles. It's quite an event. If you happen to be visiting northern Italy in early June, it's worth a look. I'll put a link on the show notes. You get a long period costume procession with people dressed as peasants, knights, lords and ladies. Then they have reenactments of jousting games and a rather fun one where they get the biggest and burliest lads from the area and they run at each other in two opposing long lines over a sort of bridge and have to knock all the opponents off. Very entertaining. After that, they have two sometimes relatively famous actors playing Henry and Matilda, doing their little bit. The only issue is that they usually use a young woman as Matilda, although at the time she was around 64 years old. But never mind, the event was started back in 1955. And it is called the Corteo Matildico. Going back to the real Henry V, after Canossa, now escorted by Matilda's troops, Henry made his way down from city to city, all the way to Sutri. Now, since a recap and a mega recap is coming up, let me once again ask you a question that I asked back in episode 34 regarding episode 10. Why is the city of Sutri particularly important? I'll give you some time to think. Do 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 do
do-do-do-do-do, and so on. Got it? It was important for the donation of Sutri, when the Lombard king Liutprand took the city of Sutri from the Byzantine Empire and gave it back not to the Empire, but to Pope Gregory II in 728. That's five Gregories back. Thus marking one of the possible starting points for the Papal States. Speaking of the recap, just a reminder that as well as the regular recap, there will be a mega recap that goes from the fall of the Roman Empire to the Concordat of Worms in 1122 in one neat little package that you can then purchase with a donation on PayPal of the amount of your choice and keep forever and ever and give as a present or use to get loads of money out of a student preparing medieval Italian history for an exam. Anyway, now we are in Sutri again and the year is 1111. It is the 4th of February and Henry V has sent out feelers to see if he can't hammer out a deal with Pope Pascal II. The response of the Pope takes the would-be emperor completely by surprise, just like the ferocity of the French taunting in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. He was flummoxed. He was flabbergasted. He was blown away. Basically, what Pascal was saying was that if Henry renounced the investitures, the Pope would immediately order all of the bishops to renounce their regalia, i.e. all the lands and wealth, and keep only what could be demonstrated as originally belonging to the church. This was in line with the idea that was gaining in the church, in particular promoted by Ivo, Bishop of Chartres. The idea was relatively simple, but, like many simple ideas, quite revolutionary in its application. Basically, a bishop did not have a single power to answer to, as had been the case till then, either the king or the pope. No, the bishop had two powers to answer to, the temporal power of the ruler and the spiritual power of the pope, a sort of render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's, but backwards, I suppose. Anyway, Henry knew that this idea, under the existing circumstances, was crazy. I mean, imagine you're a bishop, happily living in your vast tracts of land and rolling in cash. Then one day, out of the blue, some guy who lives hundreds of miles away said that you had to give it all up. You can imagine the response. Sure, we'll give up all these lands and riches and comforts and lead a life of sacrifice and prayer. Why not? Show me where to sign. I'm up for it. Not. Henry knew this wasn't going to go down well at all, but he wanted the imperial crown. So he accepted, provided that all the bishops and princes also agreed. Then, on the 11th of February, just a week after the agreement, the day of the coronation came around. As expected, when the agreement was announced during the coronation, there was a great hubbub, and Henry announced that the agreement was forfeit. But, 
wanted the ceremony to proceed. The Pope, of course, refused, and for his trouble, he and all the Reformer Party bishops present were made prisoner by Henry, and kept there until the Pope agreed not only to crown the Emperor, but also to allow him the privilege of investitures. Therefore, we were once again back exactly where the whole thing started, back to square one, back to the drawing board, starting from scratch, if you will. After that, the support of many areas of the church gave Pascal back enough courage to renounce the deal and rescind the right of the emperor to investitures. Although he didn't have much of an effect, and he didn't go so far as to excommunicate the emperor. One thing he was able to do was use the influence of the church to cause some trouble in the clergy in Germany for the emperor, which he had to sort out, along with all the other emperor things that he had to sort out anyway. The emperor had no doubt about where the trouble was coming from, and once again, when he was free to do so, would you believe it, he made his way down to Italy. This time, on his way down in 1116, he had another task to deal with, sorting out the inheritance of the Countess Matilda, who had finally died the year before. Her struggle was over, and she was finally at peace. The vast lands of the Canossa that stretched from the confines of Rome to those of northern Italy were now ripe for the taking. Henry handed over Tuscany to a German noble, Robodo, who didn't last long and was soon substituted by another Conrad. Having sorted this out, Henry made his way down to Rome, where the Pope had very wisely fled to Benevento. The Emperor was welcomed by festive crowds, and he went waltzing around the city on his horse with his Empress. And then, off he went again, because an epidemic had started to spread through his army. Pascal II got back to Rome just in time to die there, and he was substituted by Gelasius II. Quite surprised that two people would actually want to be called Gelasius, but anyway. Henry, at this point, turned around before even getting back to Germany, forcing the new pope to escape to Pisa and then to Cluny. Henry pulled an antipope out of his hat, Gregory VIII. I mean, why wouldn't you? That's one of the emperor hobbies, hunting and investing antipopes. Meanwhile, the pope with a weird name died after lasting a whole year. In his place came a more rounded, brave and, more importantly, more practical man, Guy of Burgundy, who took the name of Calixtus the second. He understood that he needed to win over the high German clergy who were afraid of losing their privileges, and so he made guarantees to them in exchange for their help in reaching an agreement with the emperor. This was the prelude to the Concordat of Worms. The agreement, signed in 1122, was really a case of much ado about nothing. It's true that it silenced the investiture controversy, but only because after that, neither side was in a position to continue the struggle for a while. Basically, 
With the agreement, the emperor gave up the right to investiture. The pope accepted that although the bishops in Germany would be chosen by the clergy, the emperor would have the right to have a delegate present at the selection, and to intervene in case of disagreement. Then the emperor could invest the bishop with lands and rights. Perhaps the delegate could also stand in the corner with a whopping great sword or mace. Just to make sure things were going the emperor's way, it was a strategy for everyone to save face. The church, in particular, had retreated from the more extreme positions of Gregory the Seventh to reach a compromise that applied specifically to Germany. It was a momentary tactical retreat, waiting for a more convenient moment, perhaps when the empire. Was a bit weaker. That moment was closer than everyone thought. The Concordat of Worms is a good stopping point for us. Obviously, it's not like everyone went home after the conference and decided to do things completely differently in the way they had done until then. So, in about nine hundred years, a little podcaster could find a good stopping point. But enough has changed now, and we have said goodbye. To a few big names, so we can take a break and have a look back. Hopefully, we'll be able to have a look back specifically at Matilda and give her an episode. Hopefully, an episode for the Byzantines who are no longer in Italy. Maybe, if we can, the Arabs who are no longer in Sicily. At least, they no longer rule Sicily. Then the regular recap, and after that, the promised mega recap that will be on sale. On PayPal. Thank you very much to everyone, as always, for listening. Thanks in particular to my Patreon donors, the Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi level, Sean, Jeff, and Ed, the Matilde di Canossa and Giuseppe Mazzini level, Benjamin, Roberta, and W.R., the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Chris. Stephen, Vincent, Jay, Shelby, Caitlin, Ben, Dean, Ignazio, and Selene. Then, obviously, thanks to our Dante Alighieri and Maria Montessori level, Sen. Thanks also very much to a couple of PayPal donors, William K and John K. Also, I don't know where everybody's listening, but I haven't had the opportunity. To thank my little clan of Stitcher listeners. So, if you're listening on Stitcher, hello and thanks very much. But obviously, thanks very much to everyone listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, and so on and so forth. If you want to get in touch, the email is hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media and have a look at our maps and timelines. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com/ahistoryofitaly or on the site with the PayPal donate button. Thanks very much to everyone who has done so, who will do so. But in general, thanks very much to everyone for listening. And until next time, arrivederci.
Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.